Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. We're back with another NAOP Takeaways. NAOP Southern Nevada led off its year with a January program, which was titled Developers Roundtable, a 2022 kickoff. As you know, NAOP is the association for the commercial real estate development community. In the room that morning at the Orleans were over 200 attendees, and there were an additional 75 or so that joined by Zoom. So our crowds are back to pre-pandemic levels. I was asked to moderate the panel that morning. It was a panel of developers that included Reed Gottesman, who is Senior Vice President and Regional Manager of the newly rebranded Schnitzer Properties. We had Jeff Lepore, founder and president of Lepore, which is a commercial real estate and hospitality development firm. Everyone's favorite, everyone's NAOP favorite, Rod Martin, who's a senior vice president and director of development for Majestic Realty. And John Ramos, who is partner for Nevada for Dermody Properties. So the event sponsor that morning was Jay Heller with Heller Companies. As always, thank you so much, Jay, for not just sponsoring that morning, but everything that you do for NAOP. You know, this kind of roundtable discussion, it's really become an audience favorite. You get four active developers on a stage. They're sitting there in kind of like a lounge environment, you know, no table, just some big, big lounge chairs. Everyone's facing each other and they get to talk. They talk to each other in in a roundtable. That's why it's called a roundtable, right? Uh, They talk about development today. So as the moderator, I was really focused on just seeding a topic and then nurturing a conversation around it, a conversation that the developers were having amongst each other. I preferred that as opposed to a question and answer, question and answer, which is more of like an interview format or interview dynamic. Now, what comes out of these roundtables, we've we've learned that when we've done them in the past, and that's why we brought it back um, to kick off the January set of programs. What comes out is a diverse and a dense and sometimes a very technical conversation. So there's a lot of really good content. We covered a spectrum of topics that morning and just started with with the first question. Hey, guys, how is the development business doing right now? We talked about what's happening. That's really great. We also talked about what's happening. That is that is maybe unhealthy. We talked about how the southern Nevada market compares to other markets in the region the effects of construction pricing and what they're doing to developments. We talked about how the local political scene has changed. We talked about demand dynamics. We talked about all that and so much more. So usually on takeaways, you're used to hearing me and a, and a guest host, and we recap our takeaways from the NAP uh, program. Today, we're going to do it a little different. I, in, I gave you the intro. I told you what you're about to hear, and I'm going to go away here in a bit. And what you're going to hear is the actual audio from the developer roundtable from the NAOP Southern Nevada January breakfast in its entirety. You guys ready to start the program? Yes. So let me ask John, Rod, Jeff, and Reed, come on up as I introduce everybody. 
And as I do that, one more reminder, there is an opportunity for Q&A with these four fine gentlemen. Notepads and pens on the table for those in the room. Everybody who's virtual, go ahead and submit your questions through the Q&A. So Reed Gottesman serves as Vice President and Regional Manager for Schnitzer Senior Properties. Vice Senior Vice President, <clears throat> excuse me, sir. <clears throat> he oversees a rapidly expanding 11 million square foot flex industrial and commercial real estate portfolio. Schnitzer Properties is firmly entrenched in our community where they lease space to 2,000 businesses. Over the next few years, Reed is excited to continue to expand the Schnitzer Properties footprint in Southern Nevada by building out their existing land holdings and seeking strategic acquisition opportunities. Sounds very complicated. A quick tidbit on Reed. In addition to all this wonderful stuff that he does, him and his wife, Tanya, are both dedicated parents to three girls who they shepherd around town to all their activities. He's a free Uber driver if anybody needs one. I don't know how you do it with two parents and three daughters, but kudos to you, sir. Jeff Lapore is founder and president of Lapore Commercial Real Estate and Hospitality Development Firm. Active in the Western United States, over the past 20 years, he's led development ventures as a principal on over 5 million square feet of office, industrial, and hospitality. A very versatile developer here. The firm has a specific focus and successful history on complicated transactions. Jeff served on the board of directors for NAP Southern Nevada for many years. He's also a member of Urban Land Institute and SIOR. You can give him a round of applause. And for Reed. Jeff is also a father of two, two young kids. So I don't know how you keep up with all this and the sleepless nights. Actually, I do know. I know your trick. I do know. Rod Martin joined Majestic Realty Co. Company in 1992 and currently serves as senior vice president, also senior, and Director of Development for the company in Las Vegas. As a senior development partner, he's responsible for the development, leasing, and asset management of Majestic Holdings in Southern Nevada, totaling over six million square feet of industrial and office projects. Rod received a Bachelor of Science in Management from W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Round of applause for Rod. Rod, you're officially an empty nester? I am. Or almost. You are. Look at that smile on his face. <laughs> Life is simple again. <laughs> yeah. I'll, just, I'll start with it. John is also an empty nester. Recently moved up to Reno from Southern Nevada, not just to enjoy his empty nesthood, but to get like totally away from the kids. But John is the partner in Nevada for Dermody Properties and responsible for the company's existing Nevada portfolio, as well as new industrial spec and build-a-suit projects and acquisitions throughout the state. A 30-year... Real estate vet, John has also served as senior real estate manager with Mutual Benefit Life Assurance Corporation, senior acquisitions associate for Prudential Real Estate Investors, and senior vice president and regional manager for Harsh Investment Properties, now Schnitzer Properties. He is chairman of the board of directors for the Henderson Chamber of Commerce and past president of its Henderson Development Association. Welcome, gentlemen. Round of applause. Let's get into it. And we'll, we'll ask the audience from time to time if you can hear us, because these lavaliers sometimes, if they're misplaced, it doesn't really carry the, the sound. So give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down if we need adjustments, all right? Denise, I see you shaking your head. You are our go-to. 
So let's start with a question that everyone gets asked and everybody asks this time of year, New Year. How's business? So before you answer that, a little context. Each of you are developers. Your core business is development. It makes sense that the four of you are up here to kick off the developer roundtable for NAOP because NAOP is the Association for Commercial Real Estate Development. You are all principal members. Your principal industry is development. So from that lens, tell us, how is business? And share, share what's great and share maybe some thoughts around some observations, things that might not be healthy. John, kick us off. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's unprecedented. I think, uh, I think that's for us. I think seeing something that uh, has evolved over the last three to five years, being the industry, industrial uh, industry here, uh, continue at the pace it's been going through uh, ups and downs, and seeing going forward the next two to three years almost a similar path. Uh, again, I'd say unprecedented. Fundamentals are extremely strong um, for the most part. I mean, when, we, when have we seen 10 million square feet under construction? When have we seen 10 million square feet absorbed? Vacancy at 1.5%. Uh, so you, the fundamentals are strong, and, and we see it continuing, uh, but there's definitely some headwinds. Uh, but we're kind of profiting uh, from what we've uh, been through and planning cautiously going forward. Rod, what would you say? How's business, sir? Business is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I entirely agree with everything that John said um, as far as what we've seen over the course of the last year where I you know, see us heading for the next 12 months and beyond. But it is difficult. And you know, I think all of us, uh, you know, particularly in the, the industrial realm, you know, recognize that it's been unprecedented, the, uh, you know, the you know, growth that we've seen in product and pricing and rates and yields and, and all the rest of that. But by no means is it a walk in the park. I know I'm working harder during these times than I ever had before it's much harder to get a project going than it's ever been before. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think it, it takes, you know, regardless of all of our professions here, it just takes hard work. There's, you know, nothing has changed uh, despite the, the record numbers that we see. It's still a very difficult industry. So, you know, to me, it, you know, hopefully we're, everybody's up for the challenge and we'll continue to, to move forward on this, but it's, uh, it's going to take a lot of work, and as you know, I'm sure we'll get into some of those concerns and headwinds that we're experiencing and fearful of. Oh, we're going to get into it, all right. <laughs> so, John and, and Rod, you're primarily industrial. Jeff, you're also, I would say, primarily industrial with with some other uh, sprinklings of, of the other product types. So, from your lens, how's business? I, I think I, I, I agree with Rod. I think um, it's tricky, but the competition is at unprecedented levels today. Every single group that has real estate capital wants to be an industrial. Um, it's created huge shortages of um, materials. Land prices are escalating. I mean, from our point of view, it's the best I've ever seen it in my lifetime. Um, from, you know, development, exit, financing, liquidity, um, profit margins. Uh, but we're also riding a, a really strong wave. And, and to John's point, there's 15, 20, 25 million square feet coming in some certain markets. We've never seen that before. Um, it's all riding a lot on e-commerce, I think, is mainly what you're seeing from a really large tenant standpoint. 
But there's also pockets of the industrial market that I think are pretty underserved, like Jay Heller talked about his project earlier today. There's not a lot of the bread and butter product being built. It's not as popular with capital. Reed, Reed has kind of the market cornered on it. Um, so everything that I'm seeing from an industrial standpoint is mostly all the same product. It's all bigger buildings, um, 200,000 square feet and up, million and a half maybe on the high side, but uh, lots and lots of competition. More people than deals, more cash than deals. In a bit, we'll, we'll get more into office and what you're seeing there. Yep. But before we do, Sir Gottesman, how's business? Uh, business is good. Uh, from an operational perspective, things couldn't be better. Uh, the portfolio is full, and our competitors' portfolios are full. And there's more prospects looking for space than there's space available. So we're getting to the point where it's almost a name-your-own-price from the landlord's perspective. So that's good and bad because there, there are concerns moving forward with the, the unhealthy side is there's so much product, there, there's so many people looking for this product and in 2022, we're not gonna have the deliveries, most of the product that's gonna be delivered is spoken for or pre-leased. So we're gonna have folks looking for space in Las Vegas. What happens if they can't find it? Are they gonna move to Phoenix, or are they going to move to Tucson? And then when this log jam kind of loosens up in 2023, a lot of our product will be delivered then. Is there still going to be the business, that, that wave coming? When is that going to end? So there is a little bit of concern moving forward, but right now, for, certainly for 2022, it's the good times. But you know, it is a little bit of a concern moving forward. Just things are almost too good right now. So, so we wanted to start that way, just ask how's business get sort of an, an umbrella put over this thing. When we kicked off January 2021, we were still very much virtual. We, the programs committee had the idea of, of putting together a developer roundtable. We recorded them by Zoom, and then we had the, the benefit of editing it down to the 45-minute window that we have here. The, the magic of that was that you all were talking to each other. And we want you to talk to each other for the rest of this breakfast. I'm just going to sit here and facilitate, maybe ask a deeper question or a clarifying question or just move us to the next topic. But um, another great thing about NAOP is you have all known each other for years, decades in some cases, and your colleagues and you're willing to share in openness for the, for the greater good. So that's you know a lot of what's happening, both good and some bad. Let's go a little deeper in some of the to this the thoughts of what is unhealthy about what you're seeing. Reed, kick us off because you were starting that path around supply and demand issues. Right. Yeah. So where I was going with that is there's there's a, a very robust pipeline, but developers like us, there, there's been a lot of delays on the front end of these projects uh, for a number of different reasons. And then the construction timeline is taking longer. So we thought we'd have a lot to deliver in 2022, but the fact of the matter is, though we have a pretty big pipeline, we're only delivering one project in this calendar year. We're super confident in that project. Moving forward, my crystal ball is not as clear as we get a year down the road. So I'm just concerned that so many companies are looking in Las Vegas right now and it's things are so good but if they can't find space are they going to move on to the next 
and what happens then? And you know, we could get into pricing and, and, and all that, but I just think as the timeline stretches out, the, the risk. Are you starting to see some of those prospects going elsewhere? Because of the frustration? So in our portfolio... Sorry, John's question was to read. Are you seeing prospects going to other markets? Certainly not yet. Um, but I think John and Rod are probably going to be better at answering that question because they have the, the, larger, uh, the larger spaces. We have not really specialized in the big box. So we're more regional companies. We do have companies coming in from out of state. So we're, no, we're not seeing that yet, but yeah, it is for, a concern. I mean, for us, we are. I mean, we are starting to see that already. And it might give the opportunities for some of these smaller businesses, I think what uh, Jeff touched on. Um, but the, the, the concern is, is that they're not finding those alternatives easily elsewhere. I'm seeing them in Reno. I'm hearing about them down in, in Arizona, in, in our California markets. Um, you know, we've got a great database that we're working with, and the tea leaves are saying, yeah, these companies want to be in a location. Now they're very flexible. You know, it's not just northern or southern Nevada. It's where can I go regionally? And the concern is, is how long is that? Now, I think we're pushing these users out. Uh, I'm in, in some cases 16, 18 months out, 24 months. Mm -hmm. Because if, it, if I have to put infrastructure in, uh, you know, we're hearing even longer than that. Uh, now, where, where's the best? Where's the best alternative? But that's going to you know, lease up just as quick. Best alternatives so, where there's available product, or mm -hmm. or yeah. they put things on hold. Yeah, and I'm we're good. starting to see a little bit of that on the manufacturing side. Costs are getting very high for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so on that manufacturing end of it, these large users are saying, you know, I can't have 150 percent uh, cost increase uh, when I'm putting 100 million dollars of infrastructure or cost or uh, equipment in. Yeah, I'm going to put things on hold right now. And we're starting to see that on the, on the uh, manufacturing side. So certainly e-commerce. The, com the companies are putting things on hold? Some of these companies are starting to put some things on hold on the manufacturing side. Uh, because the costs are escalating so high. When you say the costs, are you talking for new build to suits They're putting for, those plans on hold because of the their, costs involved? For their improvements. Uh, in, you know, you know, and their specialty type. They're just exactly. going to wait for the market to adjust. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Maybe a long wait. It we're could seeing be a some long wait. Yes. <laughs> the other thing too is that we're seeing with these larger users that we see a pipeline of these deals. So one project, uh, you know, it all depends on timing. But I'll, I'll have 15 users. I'll get 15 RFPs. What size are you talking about? Anywhere this? from uh, 80 to 350,000 square feet. And there's a fair amount of looky loos I mean, they're you know, can they make a decision? Some of them are two years ahead right now because they're being managed to think that way. You got to plan now, but when they're ready, you know, you're ready to make a decision, they back out. So you know that 15 really maybe is 25 or 30 percent when you come down to it. So there's some noise out there about all this demand, and there is, but the reality is, is it's a lot of the same groups. They're trying to find a place, uh, and who can make the decision? And it's both, both sides. Can the user make the decision? And can the landlord make the decision 24 months in advance? Well, Do we want to make that decision? We're seeing something we haven't seen before. So we generally will build, call it a 200,000 square foot building, but we'll chop it up into 20s, 40s, 60s, whatever. Now, 18, 20 months in advance, we have users coming in looking to you know, essentially uh, sign a lease now. And we're... That's not really been our business plan. That's not what we do. How does, how does that help you? Yeah. Right. 
And yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Exactly. Why would we? That's that's the question. Go, kind of clarify what you guys are talking about. Go go a little deeper. You're talking about pros and cons to a, a policy at, at Schnitzer Properties to pre-lease versus not pre-lease. Pre-lease a whole building rather than do what we do, which is spec eight units in that building. Get eight tenants, spread out our risk. We usually get higher rates for for these smaller tenants. Our business plan is generic spaces that we really don't change over the years. Or do we take the whole building, get a credit company, do something that you know, John's company would, would do or, or some of the others, and just make it a very specific building, longer term lease, and then 10 years from now when that company moves out, we've got a giant construction project on our hands to kind of retrofit the building back to what we really do. Does that help? I, I have an answer <laughs> yeah. as to why would you. When you've got your own money into projects and you've got an opportunity to get an acceptable return, you're going to take it. You know, you're always fearful of the future. You know, those of us that have been around long enough to see the highs and the lows, you're going to look at that deal that's on the table and say, is this a good deal for me? And if the answer is yes, you're going to take it and not say, yeah, I'll run the risk. I think in a year's time, I, you know, with the continuing appreciation of rates, I'm going to be better off in a year's time. But, but there's You'd future risk on that because we have a, a huge bill to pay down the road when that, and obviously there's, there's ways to structure a lease deal, but down the road, there, there's gonna be a bill to pay on that building. Jeff, you're so, shaking your head no. Well, it, it, no I mean, not necessarily. I mean, the, you know, renewals do happen, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's just a potential risk. Yeah, and sure. I think for you, Reed, absolutely. it goes back to the product type that you're building. You know, you build a 200,000 square foot building, you're designing that to be you know, broken down to you know, 14, 16,000 square foot units. It's a different thought process. Right. Do I wanna have a single tenant? Because you also know when that first lease rolls, that's still your building in five years or 10 years. You know, that's just because of what the business model of Snitcher's properties are. And do you want to take, run that risk in five years, 10 years, whenever you get that building back, of having to find another 200,000 square foot user right. when your bread and butter is those you know, mid-sized users? The scary part, so you're locking in something now if you do that deal. The scary part is the amount of time it's taking to get these, these development deals done. That's the thing is, we're, you know, here's an example. I mean, we're going to sign a lease at our I-15 South project. It's going to be delivered in uh, October. Uh, our first two buildings, a 330 and a 265. So two, we're signing that lease tomorrow, 265,000 square feet. It's 90 days old as far as negotiating, and we let you know we left some money on the table. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the rates are moving quickly, right. but now I can move on to the next phase, and we're pulling the trigger. So y y it's y we we need to monetize our holdings. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, different you know, different landlords yeah. can be patient, and in uh, different markets where there's maybe more land available we would be more open to doing that because we know that we could then buy more land. Yeah. Here, it's a tougher proposition right now. Yeah. As long as you know how much the building's gonna cost. When do you know that? Right? Yeah. Good segue, let's go into, <laughs> let's go into that. Uh, in, in the pre-call for this, it was fascinating conversation around the current state of pricing, pricing projects, construction costs. Um, maybe you guys can start with how things used to be when you approached a project and got your GC and they gave you a bid and you locked in pricing and started versus how are things now? And it's related to, um, you're also looking at longer time horizons, which Reed, I think you talked about. So, so riff on that. Price plus in today's market. What does that mean? <laughs> what does price plus there's no mean? There's no guaranteed prices anymore. No one can lock in, uh, you know, unless you locked into, at least for us, and I think it depends on certain markets, but 
other than you know, roof joists, certain product right now, I can't lock into pricing. Uh, there, no one's going to commit 14, 16 months out. So that turns into, with no guaranteed price, it's whatever that cost is plus whatever profit they're looking at, which is a risk. So you want to de-risk your deals as best you can. So that's the challenge that, that's the different environment even six months ago. Uh, and it's a concern, you know, which, which deals, which developments are really going to happen two years from now. So see, it seems like what we hear and see are roofing is the big issue. So like when you get a zoning case finished, you have to get your structural drawings done and then order your structural steel if you want to have something in the next 12 to 14, 16, 18, whatever the guy's quoting that particular minute of that particular day, right? So it's, it's a big lead time issue and it's sort of like for us, we're always an early mover and it takes away the time advantage because now everybody's equal. Like even if you beat someone to a new emerging market or whatever, you're still gonna be handcuffed to that schedule. So that, that levels the playing field for just about everybody. Like, I don't know, is there gonna be new buildings? I, don't, I didn't look at the inventory here. Are there new deliveries in 22? Is there any significant deliveries that will be completed in 22? Most of it is 23. And then it moves to 23. Yeah. So a, available space in 2022 is very limited. Yeah. Really and you're in January. Right. Yeah, but that really speaks to you know, the, the present you know, imbalance between supply and demand. You know, when you look valley-wide here where you know, sub-3% vacancy, that's not healthy. You know, that's not even healthy for developers that have existing portfolios. I know that you guys would, in the same boat as I am, you've got existing tenants that need more space and you can't accommodate them. You know, that's the, the worst position for you as a developer because you know, you're representing that you know, you're going to handle you know, your clients or your customers' real estate needs. Now all of a sudden you can't. That's what, what is really unhealthy and it's going to get worse. You know, the, the reality is now all of us that have portfolios, when a space comes up, you put it on the marketplace and you've got, you know, five, ten, you know, or more prospects looking at the space. And what is happening is the one that gets the space is the one that, you know, comes in over asking. And because maybe they've grown frustrated through losing out on one or other two other properties, they're taken at a much higher rate that I don't know if that's sustainable because right. you're seeing that that's what the rates are because they're forced into paying those higher prices. And then when you're looking at your next project, you're saying, so is that really where the market rates are? And that's the risk that, that we're running. What I haven't seen yet, though, is that friction point. We're pushing, we're pushing, and I haven't seen the friction point on rents. No, so but that's, we're that's not frightening. Paying. I mean, that's 2007. Well, that's not. But, but that. don't you think too, Rob? That, that <laughs> like, don't say, don't say it. <laughs> don't you think too, though, that like now that e-commerce has sort of made its imprint on industrial, that warehousing is not considered the loss leader that it used to be. Like everybody was like, "How cheap can I get this warehouse?" Right? It's going to be a cost. It's an expense. Now it's more of a revenue builder, right? So it's looked at, I think, differently from the tenant and the company standpoint where they realize they're generating revenue out of these spaces as opposed to just writing a check to keep product out of the weather, right? So it's, there's, I think there's a mentality shift, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, there's you know, so many things that go into it, including the you know, supply chain you know, challenges it have and, and people recognizing they need to keep you know, more product online. 
and you know, the warehouse demand continues to grow. And, and that's where employees are going too. I mean, you know, that's when you can find them. When you can find them, yeah. But those uh, those employees coming here, that's where they're working. Uh, so it's a different. It's a shift. We saw that years ago. Is it you know in certain aspects you know you're seeing, you know, 50,000 square feet, sixty thousand square feet in these industrial buildings, that are office. It's office space. Uh, so it's, it's, it's definitely a trend that's going to continue. It's definitely a market for Las Vegas. Uh, I think I said that two or three years ago. Uh, we're not seeing a lot of office buildings, but you'll touch on that. Uh, but it's being accommodated in certain respects from that labor pool uh, that's going there to a certain extent. You know what I think is going back to your question, Haim, on are we losing out to other markets? It, from where I sit, I think Las Vegas has moved up the list. And you yeah. know, we're seeing more companies who would prefer to be in Las Vegas. You know, it used to kind of be an afterthought, let's go ahead and include Las Vegas in the list. Las Vegas really has, you know, moved up on the list, and I think in many cases companies would prefer to be here if there were product as opposed to some of the competing markets. And, and touching on that, I think we chimed in. I, again, if you looked at a year or two ago, that California wave, I'm seeing a lot more companies that are non-California that want to have the presence in Nevada, north and south. Where are they coming um, from? All around the country. They want a West Coast location and Nevada's on the list, high on the list. Uh, we're still seeing a California migration, but it's not as prevalent, at least what I've seen. Um, you know, but Nevada's certainly in the mix. They're at the table. Yeah, when they're looking particularly for you know, a Western regional and that hub. that says a lot about, again, I think the, the quality, the amenities uh, of, of Nevada here that finally, I think the, you know, uh, the efforts of the state, the diversification, um, the sports, everything, has really, I think, uh, put it in the forefront that that's important to people. Well, and you've also, for the first time, really had the inventory to do it, right? Yeah. Because there hasn't really been, except for this last cycle, a huge inventory. Of big box. Of big box. Yeah. Now, I mean, you got to have it to lease it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, again, we got uh, West Henderson in the house, uh, Henderson, and obviously North Las Vegas, I saw that. And again, compliments on putting that infrastructure in. Uh, could say it's a little bit, you know, it was a little bit later, but the, it, again, stepped up uh, in accommodating that. I think the timing was good, you know, four or five years ago of planning ahead, and there's still a lot more planning to do. But, you know, the Speedway area, capitalizing on 1,300 acres there, monetizing that, West Henderson, uh, the foresight there. So um, I think, the, you know, I think it, it all worked together there. You're right, Jeff. I think that was critical to get that infrastructure in. Yeah. I want to... I get some specific contrasts of Southern Nevada to other markets. Before we go there, though, you, know, you mentioned Speedway. We're talking about costs and how they've changed. Reed, you built a building in, Spe in the Speedway, and then you built an identical building a period later. Tell us that story yeah. and what you've learned, you know, building so, one building and then another one later, and what you know, costs and timelines change. So the it's, it's, it's an interesting case study because it's two buildings right next door to each other that are exactly the same building, basically exactly the same land. It's the timing difference, and you could really see the acceleration on the cost to develop these buildings. We got final pricing on phase one in May of 2020. This building's been built, fully leased, a resounding success. Phase two has taken longer because of some of the uh, stuff we touched on earlier. This building's not built yet, but we got final pricing just in December of 21, so it's very fresh pricing. The difference in hard cost construction is close to 60% uh, higher. 
that, so you're talking about six quarters, 60% difference. You're talking about millions of dollars difference in developing the same exact building in the same exact place. The good news is the markets cooperated with us and rents keep going up. Um, the bad news is the time it takes to get this done because the longer it goes, the more risk you have as you're developing into the unknown. So I think that's a really, really good case study, pretty unique in just the, the exact nature of these buildings. Uh, one other item, there's another development project that, that the timeline, uh, this one's in the southwest between pre-construction and then uh, getting this done. The, the timeline from closing on the land till when we hope at this point, and I know hope's not a strategy, but when we hope we get this building done, so that's if everything goes very well from now on. You're talking about 28 months, where in the past you were talking about 18 months. So now we're hoping for 28 months. So we don't know what we're building into. And that's why companies are being conditioned to think in, in longer terms as well for, for delivery and occupancy. Jeff, I'm gonna ask you to, to tell us, you know, you're in Colorado, you're in Phoenix, you're here. Uh, before I do, I just wanna remind everybody, uh, virtually, if you have questions, please type them into the Q&A. Here in the room, if you've got questions, please write them down and give them to Jalen and Dan. Dan's walking around collecting questions. We're gonna start Q&A in about 10 minutes and then we'll conclude here at 9.15, just so everyone can kind of keep, keep time. Jeff, how does Southern Nevada compare to other markets? Uh, it depends on many, many factors. Um, you know, Nevada is a super desirable place. I think it, it's still one of the few places that holds the tax advantage that, um, that a lot of companies are seeking, especially California-based companies. Um, but there's also an energy and a lifestyle and a proximity to things here that make it attractive. So, I mean, if we had a lot more available land, we'd be a much larger municipality. I mean, we'd be much larger. Um, but, you know, we're, we're really constrained. So it's a, still a really small market. Um, I think the base here today is maybe 150, 140, something like that. Uh, Denver and Phoenix are 350. So they're significantly larger markets. Um, but the one thing about Las Vegas is it's always sorry. The base of inventory base. is 150, 160 million square yeah, that's feet. That's correct. Yeah. And in Denver, it's 350. 350. Um, but when you look at how active this market is, this has always been like a super high velocity absorption relative to the base. So when we were, I don't know, maybe 100 million feet, we were absorbing five, six million feet a year. You could go to Denver in a typical year on 300 million feet and not see 5 million feet of absorption. So it's not a real high velocity market, but it's an expensive market and the costs are even much greater to build there than they are here. Uh, the building standards are different, um, weather's different, there's just a number of things. Buildings are very, very expensive there. Um, and land is, is expensive too. And it's, it's boxed in as well, has a, has a scarcity of land. Uh, but it's also like one of the top desirable places for young people to move. It has walkable downtowns, has, has a lot of great features to it, um, has you know good education system. And Phoenix is, um, is, has a bit of both. Phoenix is a high velocity market too, much bigger. And, and it has the ability to grow like Southern Nevada. If Southern Nevada had the same capacity, I think 
Southern Nevada would be a bigger, in, a, a bigger region. But it's an easy place to do business. Um, it's highly desirable by a lot of companies. There's tons of um, housing options and just about any uh, rung on the ladder for any type of employment growth. And it's a big draw uh, as sports teams, as lifestyle. So each one of them has you know, its own advantage. Uh, Las Vegas being much smaller than the other two. Jeff, what's the population of Denver, the metro? So Denver's like three, five-ish, um, if you add everything together. Um, but there's a lot of outlier regions, too, that, that connect to it, that factor in. But it's, it's a very choppy market, too. Um, it's, it's, it's a big office market, um, but you know, has a lot of great sort of lifestyle features, too, snow skiing, that type of thing. I call it the Southern California of the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think Jeff brings up another good point about Las Vegas, and that is just you know, how condensed Las Vegas is as compared to the Phoenix market or certainly Southern California. If you're looking for your you know, half million square foot industrial you know, building here in Las Vegas, you're going to go up to you know, North Las Vegas and potentially to you know, West Henderson and you know, expanding from there. If you're in Southern California and your labor, knowing where your labor base is and frankly where your executives living, you know, you're going to have to go all the way out to Inland Empire East to find that you know, half million square footer. You're in Phoenix and you know, you're living in the central core area of Phoenix and you're going to go all the way out to you know, Buckeye, Goodyear and, and beyond. Hour with traffic. Yep. Yeah, yeah with all, all the congestion and that's yeah. you know, an advantage that Las Vegas does have is that you can, you know, we can, you know, build buildings, uh, large buildings to accommodate those uses and still relatively close proximity to, you know, where your driving distance is to, you know, the local communities. And, and again, a lot of those regional distribution uses that are now coming into Las Vegas, they're not so, you know, concerned with the, the local distribution. Um, but, you know, it's the other aspect that I think that we have here in Las Vegas, you know, remains what our, you know, core product has always been. And, you know, that's servicing the, the resort quarter. And still having that relatively, you know, close proximity that where those companies used to want to stay down in the airport or southwest submarket now recognize that North Las Vegas and West Henderson aren't far away whatsoever and they're very attractive alternatives. And you, when you see a lot of those, you know, traditional users that would have been in the airport southwest submarkets going into the to West Henderson. Ron, have you seen like a, a bit of a, a reduction in requirements for the gaming uh, users or well, certainly you know, I think all of us, you know, were scared to death in March of, of sure. twenty twenty that you know, when there was the, uh, the closure of the casinos. And so, you know, that segment of the, uh, the market really shut down for probably six months. Yeah. Um, and it's been very slow to recover, which is another aspect that I think is going to lead to, you know, tightening of the already, you know, sub 3% vacancy and increasing of the, you know, already, you know, escalating, you know, rent prices. That, that segment of our economy is waking up again. Um, you know, when you look at the, you know, the numbers uh, coming from the, the casinos, uh, you know, there's still something that, that's amiss, and I, I don't know if anybody here in the audience understands. The biggest question in my mind when you look at the, uh, you know, the gaming revenues, which are you know now surpassing 2019, but you look at the occupancy rates of the uh, hotel casinos, there's just something amiss there. You know, you're down 20 percent in in occupancy, but yet the the gaming revenues are at all-time records. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what that, that means. Maybe it's that less occupancy during the week because of lack of business travel and bigger gamblers on the weekend. Well, it would have to be bigger gamblers. I mean, just because number of people you would think, you know, so there's something amiss there that I really don't understand. Unless it's, it's you know. fuzzy math. 
<laughs> but you know, back to, back to the size of the market. I mean, keep in mind that a place like Dallas, our entire market is smaller than a sub-market that they have. The whole market. And when I first got in the business, there was like these sub-market lines that you're like, oh man, if you cross this line, then this, this becomes what the terms are, the rates are, whatever. Um, you know, I brought someone out from Dallas one time and they're like, well, what's this? I said, that's the airport sub-market. And they're like, what's that? I said, that's the Southwest. They're like, they're the same, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, it's all relative, but, yeah. but um, Las Vegas has always been a tight market. When I got in the business, I think the base here was 20 million feet. And I remember the second year when I was a broker, the vacancy got to 1.8. I mean, that's zero space. Wow. And back then we didn't have the institutional quality product either. So when we were preparing for this, we talked a lot about industrial because there's a lot of industrial development and we shifted to office. And you started with, I'm going to ask you now to talk about office, but, but I'm going to frame it with two of the things that you said. I don't know if they were, you were being cheeky or if you're being serious. You said, I'll tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't build office in Las Vegas. And you said, I'm happy to talk about the herd mentality of capital and disregard of fundamentals. So, so in that frame, yeah, Jeff, no, on, a, I, on a positive I, I, note. I, I, was, yeah. I, was, I was being serious. Um, but for, for more context, so you, I, I just saw the flyover of narrative that you guys just posted yesterday. Yeah. So let's start with narrative. What is it? Where are you in it? And then go back to why you shouldn't do this and herd mentality. Okay, so the Las Vegas office market has never been really nationally recognized as a traditional office market. It's small. Um, it's really highly fragmented. There's a lot of um, small independent businesses that own their own buildings. But all you have to do is look at, go look at a Q4 report from any of the firms represented here. You're gonna see what looks like a dismal picture, right? You're gonna say, oh my gosh, how did we lose 250,000 feet of negative absorption in 2021, right? Because that's probably what it's gonna say. And you're going to see a vacancy of, the vacancy is not that high. It's about 14 maybe, give or take, depends on who you, who you believe. But what I think is missed, and I think the reason that the only people building office are people that live here, because they can understand the market and be in it. Because if you're trying to do a desktop underwriting from LA or Dallas or Chicago or wherever, you're going to just put a line right through it and say, why would I ever build office in Las Vegas? But if you flip it and say, okay, let me, let me see a nationally recognized growing Sunbelt market that has had no new supply for 10 plus years, right? If I didn't tell you the name of the town, you'd be like, geez, I should look at a deal there, right? So there is growth and there is sort of this new trend after COVID that says, I'm a company, I want a new building. I know I can pick from all this vacancy, I don't want that. And I'm willing to pay what it takes to get a new building in today's market. Now, how deep is that pool? I don't know. Um, but you've seen a lot of absorption. Um, we've leased a, uh, a project that started and then stopped and stayed stopped during COVID until we got the leasing higher. I've never seen that in this market. Um, you see, you know, DraftKings is another big tenant that's landed. The, the, the credit worthiness, the company profile, and the number of companies that want to be here is dramatically improved over the last office building I built in 2008. 
and it goes back to what we're talking about with industrial, you have to have the product standing for somebody to get it, right? How many, it would be interesting to see how many companies would like to be here but can't find suitable space. So COVID actually, I think, has helped the office market here, the new buildings. And it's, it's made um, people recognize that they are willing to pay and there is demand for new product. So if you look at just the stats and you just want the general institutional underwriting, you're not going to build an office building here. You're telling us all the reasons why we should. Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't because you, if you read the, and belong to the, uh, listen to the reports, it's a dismal picture. And Jeff, I'm just to you know, follow up, I think, where Haim was going, which I thought was very insightful that you shared with us in that, the pre-call. What you found on the construction financing for, for office product here in Las Vegas? There isn't any. There isn't any. I mean, any building that got built was either, um, I, I don't know about um, the, the nice new building at Howard Hughes, that's maybe corporate debt, but um, all of us that have built on the Beltway have all had non-traditional financing because it's just not available. I mean, you know, and I can see that uh, any lender is going to have difficulty taking this market data and taking it through committee and building a case for why you should build an office building. Now, when these buildings get absorbed and you see some trades happen, it should pave the way for some more capital inflow. That's the herd mentality you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, true. Speak on the trends on the exit and why that's meaningful. So when you look at all the liquidity that's in the markets today, Every single large capital fund wants industrial. It has driven yields down to high twos in some cases. I don't know in Southern California. Three is here. Three, you're going to buy a, a building on these escalated rents today at a 3% cap rate, right? And there's a lot of trades, and these buildings are trading for you know $200 a foot in some cases. Not everybody can buy an industrial building, yet everybody needs yield. And we're seeing it in Phoenix right now. It's, it's starting to find a new home for a higher yield. So we're going out to market right now on an office building that we built in 2016 in, in Phoenix. It's an infill, 120,000 square foot building. And when we underwrote and financed that building, the vacancy in that submarket was 21%. But there was a reason for it. Like you have to peel the onion and look. And we leased it up. And we're going to market, we got three BOVs, and we think that we're gonna sell this building for over $500 a foot. And it's probably gonna trade for a high five or six cap even. So if you look at what an office building, brand new construction, excellent credit tenants, um, great location, your yield is almost double what you're gonna get in the industrial building. Yes, the risk perception is higher, et cetera, right? But there's lots of office owners that don't mind owning office. So you're going, to see, you're going to have to see buildings here, exit prices at 450 500 You have to. But relatively speaking, it's still less expensive than any of the neighboring states. So it's, there's a case, and, and you'll see it when these buildings trade. They'll trade. You'll, you'll, when things loosen a bit and everybody stops talking about how COVID killed the office market forever, right? Because there is no forever, right? It'll be back. We're ready for some Q&A. Thank you very much. Everyone can hear. Um, Rod, let's start with you. Can you tell, it's not a very exciting subject, but could you tell why you care and why NAOP cares about evaporative cooling? There's been a couple questions 
on that <laughs> exciting subject. Because you have more vapid conclusions oh. than anybody? <laughs> so I'm not sure what the level of familiarity is with everybody here in the audience, but uh, you know, just in a nutshell, and uh, I know that we've sent a couple of newsletters out to addressing this. Uh, I guess let me back up. Evaporative cooling, when it comes to warehouse development, is uh, you know the manner in which we keep warehouses at a not uncomfortable temperature for both product and for employees. You know that not uncomfortable temperature in the middle of summers here with its you know ambient air temperature of 115 inside the building, you're still at a, you know a not uncomfortable 85, 90 degrees, um, and you have the movement of air. It's cool air that's coming in from water. Now, obviously, everybody in this room understands the drought conditions that Southern Nevada is in. And with the continuing growth, there's uh, been concerns expressed by the Southern Nevada Water Authority and most of the, uh, the local jurisdictions that we need to you know, further constrain the, uh, the use of consumptive water, that which doesn't go back into the lake. So one of the elements that the, uh, the municipalities, the county, and Southern Nevada Water Authority are looking to do is to limit and potentially eliminate the evaporative cooling and warehousing. So what that means is that if you have a warehouse, your product is gonna be stored at 120 degrees or hotter, you know, as the, the heat rises, and your employees are gonna be in, you know, very uncomfortable conditions. And what that means for developers, you're either going to say, tenant, you're gonna to have to put that mechanical cooling into to your space, at a tenant expense, which is going to be significant, their ongoing operating costs are going to be significant. Um, it's a very important issue because from a developer standpoint, you have to wrestle with the question, do I want to prepare my building for you know, future mechanical cooling, which is reinforcing the roof structure and upgrading the, the power service at significant costs, which will all be passed on to the tenant. And the challenge that we have in Las Vegas is compared to, you know, people will look to Southern California or, or Phoenix or Reno and certainly we see studies coming out of the Northwest and so forth. Um, the tenant base here is accustomed to evaporative cooling. If I think any of you that have businesses that are in evaporative cooling and you were to be asked, would you move into a building with no EVAPs? The answer is no way. Nobody is going to do that. So it's a really critical topic for the development community, you know, nobody, you know, should ever go to the extreme of saying that it's going to, you know, stymie, you know, future development, but it would be a significant hurdle for, for ongoing development and a significant cost increase for the overall market, which potentially, um, you know, could impact companies' decisions to locate in Las Vegas versus going to other markets. I think that's a key, key point, Rod. It, it uh, yeah. takes away Southern Nevada as, okay, here's a, you know, I think we're close to a, a buck a square foot already on asking average asking rates per month for industrial. And doing so, the conversion to mechanical probably takes you up to you know, a buck 15 to a buck 20 a square foot yeah. to re recoup your costs and the ongoing operating cost to the tenant. Um, you know, I've heard as much as eightfold on your power bill. Yeah. So it's just, it, it's an important metric in that equation, uh, you know, the cost, that operating cost. And do we want to be uh, an advantage or at a disadvantage? I think it's against us. So certainly something to, to really focus on very quickly. Yeah, and Dan, certainly NAOP, you know, this is front and center on our government affairs. Uh, you know, we, we recognize the, the drought conditions that Southern Nevada is in. We recognize the, the, the climate change and the direction that, it, that it's going. What our hope is in our continuing discussions with government officials and, and the authority is that there's, you know, 
you know, there's a meeting in the middle or, or a compromise, you know, recognizing again when you look at the removal of non-functional turf, uh, evaporative cooling are entirely functional. It, it's not something that just looks nice, it's critical for, you know, both product and for, for humans working in the warehouse. So, you know, we're hopeful that we'll, you know, find some middle ground, um, but it's a, it's a threat to, you know, continuing what development. Middle, what would middle ground be? So, you know, the, the challenge is, you, you look at, for instance, Southern California, and they're not accustomed to using evaporative cooler. And as development has continued to push out into the Inland Empire where the climat, uh, climatic conditions are more similar to Las Vegas, they'll just put in the, the high-velocity fans, and, which do a great job of, of moving the air. Um, the, the challenge is moving air at 120-degree you know, temperature doesn't really solve the problem. You need some element in there to cool the air as well. Um, in my opinion, you know, something that we would look at is a reduction in evaporative coolers and maybe you know, augmenting it with exhaust fans to remove the, the hot air and you know, use some of the high-velocity fans as well, limiting the number of evaporative coolers. Um, you know, evaporative cooling for, for decades has been you know, the most efficient and economical way to, you know, to cool buildings. It's something that I think most of the, you know, the agencies you know, really supported. Our concern is just you know, the draconian approach of saying that word moratorium, which frightens the heck out of you. And you know, if there is going to be you know, a moratorium, I would hope that it, it would be planned in such a way to allow for businesses and development to account for that, um, you know, such as they did with the, you know, the SEER ratings on the, the air conditioners. As of this year, you know, you're not going to be able to put those old units in. Yeah, yeah. So, something my, my wife and I always say uh, to our kids is, there's a solution for every problem, and this one's no different. And I think, there should not be a knee-jerk reaction. There, this should be a thoughtful process that the stakeholders get together, work together, and figure out what that solution is, because it's there. So rather than the knee-jerk. John, you mentioned rents were about a dollar a square foot industrial, just a round number. And if it went up 20 cents a foot, what would that do to the pipeline of Dermody in southern Nevada? I think it's a bigger question. I guess the if it's... The cost that's uh, pushing that, if it's land prices, you're seeing that in other No, markets. just evaporative cooling prices. Oh, oh, I again, I think that that does start to, yeah, it puts us in a, a potentially a disadvantage with some of the other markets. Uh, Phoenix, for instance, Phoenix has to go through very similar uh, development, you know, procedures and, and for, you know, from a, a cost standpoint. Yeah. But... Yeah, if we're at, at par with uh, some of those other markets, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a disadvantage. So I, I, do, I do expect it if, yeah, it would be another check minus. As Rod said, I think if a company is coming in there and saying, you know, absolutely you can't have it, yeah. uh, you could have it at an X cost at your, you know, um, that's going to... Do we want know, to hurt the perception of this market? Yeah, why, why do it? Yeah, yeah economic development. There's a solution. There's, there is a solution. There's a solution here. Yeah. I think this could have came from Ed Vance, but they were talking about, you know, land prices are coming up and leasing's coming up and construction costs are coming up. Are the design fees coming up also for all you developers? <laughs> he knows the answer to that. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, yeah, I, I would say... Across, Structural architecture across the board, across the board. Everything is more expensive. If you go to Albertsons and buy a container of milk, it's more expensive. Everything's more expensive. But I would say that the biggest items that I've seen, it's wood and metal, but everything is more expensive. 
Everything's more expensive and more difficult to get, and certainty on delivery is very difficult. But other than that, it's perfect. <laughs> so we're, we're getting to time, and that's actually a perfect segue to the final question that we have. It's January. It's the new year. Everybody loves a good prediction. So I'm going to ask you guys to make a prediction. You know, Dan, Dan nailed it. Uh, costs on everything are going up. Everything is taking longer. Fortunately, rents are keeping pace. At some point, there has to be friction or resistance. So we'll start with John. We'll go down the line. What's your prediction for 2022? Is this the year we start seeing friction and resistance or not? I, I, we're already starting to see the friction. The, the question is, is, is it going to be uh, expanded again in uncertainty? We've got a pipeline of, of product that we're developing right now and can deliver in 22. So I know it's going to be a productive year for us. It's, uh, it's beyond the 12 months that I'm certainly concerned with. Uh, so I'm going to be busy, <laughs> no question about it. But friction is uh, it, it's, it's at the table right now. It's just how we're going to deal with it, making decisions. It's going to be riskier decisions for us that are going to be made. We're going to make them, um, and we're going to try to hedge our bet because we're long-term players. We want the product in the market. Um, and it, it, might lim- it, it may limit some of the other smaller players that have come in. Uh, we'll see. We're prepared for it. Rod, prediction for 2022. Is this the year for resistance and friction? I don't think so. Um, I think it's going to be beyond 22. I think there's an awful lot of things that we're all watching and our potential concern. You know, we just touched upon inflation, um, which then goes hand in hand with Fed policy. And, you know, we're going to see... Uh, increase in you know Fed rates. You know even if you go up a you know 100 basis points, you're still going to be under you know below where we were in 2019 pre-pandemic. Um, so I think we've got a little bit more runway there, but it's coming. Inflation's hitting all of us uh, in everything that we do. And you know, Reed mentioned commodity pricing, uh, labor shortages is certainly a, a difficulty that's going to continue to get worse. Um, you know you can't talk about anything in the world today without discussing COVID because that's, you know, remains the big wild card or, you know, this Omicron variant, are we get, you know, kind of pass that hurdle and, and on to greener pastures or is there going to be something else that, you know, completely disrupts the, uh, you know, the worldwide economy again? That's, you know, the, one of the biggest wild cards and you have know, the other normal wild cards and, you know, geopolitical action that, you know, nobody thinks about until there's a problem somewhere you know, in the world. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, we're going to worry about. Um, you know, people are going to look at the midterm elections. You know, is that going to potentially change anything? Six months ago, we were worried about changes in tax policy. You know, that worry hasn't come to fruition yet, but there's just, you know, a lot of things out there on the horizon. And, and at some point in time, something's going to cool the market. We don't know what it is. Uh, I, and why I believe we're good for 2022, I can't even think of what it might be, which is the frightening part. But I feel, yeah, we're pretty good for, you know, at least for the year 2022. You know, the challenge is with the conditions that are out there, there's not going to be a lot of product that's delivered in 2022. Jeff? Uh, I, I agree with Rod. I think there's so much absorption and momentum and so many requirements in the market for industrial specifically that um, it takes time for that stuff to burn off. I think there could be a bottleneck between demand and lack of supply because of the inability to deliver this space. Um, but I think 22 is going to be another good year. I'm looking for the friction in 2022, not seeing it. I don't think we'll see it in 2022. In 2023, I think there's risks as this product that's not pre-leased comes online. 
So it was a no, a no, a no, a no, and a no. No friction for 2022 that like we can foresee friction. anyway. <laughs> uh, no resistance, but maybe it's certainly coming around the horizon. And like Jeff said, active momentum. I want to thank all of our panelists. Round of applause, please, for our panelists. A round of applause for Jay Heller and Heller Companies as the breakfast sponsor. Those that joined us virtually, please stick on and, and take the survey after the program. And for everybody else, uh, mark your calendars Thursday, February 24th for the next NAOP Southern Nevada breakfast program right here at the Orleans. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.